You are listening to the Crossing Anchor Podcast in Detroit, Michigan. So glad to have you with us today. If this encourages you or helps, please share the word and bless others as well. Let's start with today's content. I remember the day so clearly. Uh, It was a Sunday morning at church. Um, We were nearing the end of service, and the opportunity to accept Christ into your life was presented. Uh, And as I looked around the room, I saw a familiar face stand to his feet. Uh, This was a young man that I knew well. Um, And it was such a beautiful moment as as I watched him stand and his parents looking at him Uh, so intently and just so passionately, knowing the things that he has gone through in his life. Um, The next day, I get a phone call. That same young man who gave his life to Christ just the day before took his own the next morning. And every single one of us were just left wondering why. Just a couple months ago, I was visiting my family in New York One evening around midnight, my little brother comes running out of his room. His friend is unconscious and unresponsive. Um, I sat there for what felt like an eternity with this boy dying in my arms, trying to keep his airways open. He had overdosed. This was the second time in two weeks. I thank God that he saved that boy that day, but it left me wondering why. And when you hear stories like these, I imagine that your own version of those kind of stories comes to mind. The day that you lost a loved one. The day that you withdrew your last dollar and had no other options. The day that you walked out of your boss's office to collect your things. The day that your spouse said that they couldn't do it anymore. The day that the doctor came in and said, there's no easy way to say this. See, suffering is always taking shape around our lives. It's always biting at our heels, and it occasionally wrestles us all the way to the ground, and some of us never get back up. And for those of us that do, we walk with a a limp for the rest of our lives. Suffering tends to be where we look hardest for God and where God is hardest to find. G.K. Chesterton once said, the worst moment for the atheist is when he is really thankful and has nobody to thank. And I believe that's true, but I also believe that the worst moment for the Christian is when they they are suffering and the God that they spent so much time thanking and praising, they now find themselves blaming. In the early days of the pandemic, economist Jeanette Benson of the University of Copenhagen examined Google searches for the word prayer in 95 different countries. She identified that they hit an all-time global high in March of 2020, aligning with the start of the pandemic. Increases occurred in unison with the number of COVID-19 cases identified in each country. So when suffering broke the illusion of control that we find ourselves in most of the time, in times of peace found themselves running from God, found themselves running to God. But we see the other side of this, that everyone who was desperately running to God in 2020, there was at least one other person saying goodbye to a God that didn't seem to be any help at all. The same exact set of circumstances had half of the world running to God and the other half of the world running from God. 
The same set of circumstances that had half the world running to church had those who were in the church fleeing for the exits at the exact same rate. And what this exposes in the church is that we are far more well acquainted with the God of the mountaintop than we are with the God of the valley. That we know more about how to praise Jesus of powerful resurrection than we do know how to weep with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that we're more well acquainted with the King of Kings than we are with the suffering servant. Our churches have been built on the peak of the mountains, and that's not to say it's a bad thing, because God does answer prayers. God does do miracles. Jesus himself takes us to the mountaintop. So we should be celebrating those things. But much of the American church lacks a spirituality that can recognize Jesus equally in the valley. We struggle to lament and to wait and to tell the unresolved stories. We struggle to weep with those who weep and to offer hope to the suffering. There's this scene in Ellie Wiesel's memoir titled Night where Wiesel, who was a prisoner in Auschwitz, arrives at a concentration camp. And at first he writes that he is plagued by the madness of mass human killing that is a daily occurrence in this place. He then writes that he becomes calloused to this as it's become almost routine. He describes this one day when the entire camp is gathered together and the gallows are set in front of them. What they would do is for, when someone broke rules, they would gather the entire camp to make them watch as a warning to not break rules. On this specific day, there were three prisoners. The two on the sides were grown men, but the one who was in the middle was just a child. And so the scene itself was biblical. You had the two criminals on the side, but this one in the middle was the picture of innocence. And then when the guard yelled and the stools got kicked out from under their feet, the man directly behind Ellie just whispered under his breath, where is God? And Wiesel writes, from within me, I heard a voice. Where is he? This is where. Hanging here from these gallows. Two men, two perspectives. One looks at that scene furious at God, and the other looks at that scene angering at the darkness, captivated by a God who would be willing to enter it. Perspective shapes our experience of suffering. What we expect from this life, what we think we are entitled to, or what we think God promises us, and what he doesn't, it controls our reaction to the event in our lives and how we interpret them. In his book, All Things New, Pete Hughes says, the story that you live in is the story that you live out. So in order to properly know God amidst suffering, to know how to look for him and find him there, we first have to know the story that our lives are playing out within it. And that is where I want to take us today. The story of the Bible when it comes to suffering. I've titled today's sermon, The Beginning and the End of Suffering. And I want to give you that story in different scenes, starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation, tracing this one single theme from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. So I hope you guys are planning on staying for worship night because we'll be here till then. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, please take them out. I'd love for you to follow along with me. If not, we'll have the scripture up on the screen. Um, scene one, the creation and the fall. The biblical story does not start with conflict. It begins with bliss. 
God did not create a world of pain and suffering. He was not the author of suffering. It was never intended to be a part of the story. The entire chapter of Genesis 1 documents God creating and every step of the way he says, it was good. And then when he ends, he says, it's very good. The early parts of the Bible are of God's people living in paradise with him, heaven and earth in one place. There was no death, no grief, no sadness, no pain on page one of our story. But it doesn't take long for God's good creation to be corrupted by the evil one. Just one page forward brings us to the story of Adam and Eve and their decision to pick that one forbidden fruit in the entire creation. And the consequences are of the utmost. Suddenly they distrust the God that they used to know as loving father. They feel insecure with one another and mankind is cursed. It was our rebellion against God that birthed pain, sadness, and suffering. After God explains the consequences of sin to all the involved parties, he says something really interesting in Genesis 3.17. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. So the consequences of sin haven't just infected people. They've infected every square inch of the creation itself. It's in the air that we breathe and the dirt under our feet. There is nothing in all of creation untouched by sin. And if you look in the very next chapter, God reluctantly allows humanity to have what they want, to be God over their own lives. And the consequences of that transaction are that they leave Eden. They go from no death, no pain, no sadness, no suffering, to a world filled with pain, filled with sadness, filled with suffering. You see, God told one story and the serpent told another and humanity decided to believe and go with the serpent. The story that you live in is the story that you live out. So where does all of this trouble come from? What is the source of the suffering that Jesus promises that we will face? It's not God, it's sin. All of our trouble is the product of a curse that infected every aspect of the world that God made good and only good. Why would a young man with so much life to live take his own? Why would a child who had already suffered so much trauma get caught up in something as bad as addiction? Not because God willed any of it, but because the consequences of, in, of this curse is in the air that we breathe and the dirt under our feet. Why do we weep over caskets? Why does a hurricane ram into Florida? Why does a disease start in one person in Wuhan and, and grow until the world is paralyzed? Not because of God, but because of this sin thing. It, it has consequences. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that all suffering is the direct result of, one's, of anyone's particular sin. There's not always even a one-to-one -one correlation between sin and suffering. What I'm saying is that the, cur the curse of sin has infected the world that we live in and that suffering is a symptom of that sin, meaning the world that we chose, not the world that God created. Suffering is a result of the fallen world. This is the biblical teaching on the origins of suffering. 
We're involved in a world of, suffer, of sin, sometimes ours and sometimes others, and therefore in a world of suffering. We live in a world of injustice, pain, and suffering, but we have an all-powerful and perfectly loving God. So how can those two things coexist? How can there be a God perfect in love and power in a world where this or that would happen? That's the question that is so often asked due to our personal experiences of suffering. Theologians call that question theodicy, meaning the justice of God. Whatever you believe, however you make sense of this world, we're stuck with a square peg called suffering, trying to fit that into a round hole called God. But this is not the only question that is presented to us by suffering. There's another question that's equally as important, and that is scene two. How does God feel about suffering? Genesis 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So God looks down at the consequences of sin. The way that people are treating each other, the thoughts that ran through our minds, the, the mixed motives and selfish ambitions within us, the suffering that all of that had produced as history had rolled by, and he regretted creation in the first place. You see, as delighted as God is at Genesis 1 when he says, it was very good, he is equally grieved in Genesis 6 and his heart was deeply troubled. So how does God feel about suffering? It grieves his heart. In the same way that it grieves yours and mine. And as the story continues, God seems to work through something that we would call the stages of grief. Scripture reveals a God who loves his creation in a way that will never give up. A God who hates sin with a passion that will not be satisfied until he has eradicated every last trace. The God of the Bible is both a heartbroken parent who is grieving loss and a warrior who will stop at nothing to defeat the enemy and redeem every trace of the cost along the way. So here's the principle that we get from the first six chapters of the Bible. Suffering in every variety is not the punishment of sin, but the natural consequence of sin and sin and suffering deeply grieves the heart of God and God hates sin and suffering. You with me? Yeah. Okay. And as the story unfolds, we see the intervening character of God who is infinite in power and perfect in love gets worked out within this world of suffering. Scene three, the heart of a father and the promise of a savior. Now, I want us to look at that famous burning bush encounter that God, where God speaks to Moses and then he sends him to Egypt to deliver the people of Israel who are living in slavery. We learn something so important about God's heart from that experience. In Exodus 3, 7, it says, The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. I'm here to tell you today that there is a God who is concerned about your suffering, who cares about your pain, who cares about your sorrow, who cares what you're going through, who hears your cry in the silent dead of night when you feel like you're all alone, a God who cares about you. 
You see, it wasn't Moses' prayer that God was hearing. It was the unnamed Hebrew slaves who are whispering prayers under their breath while they're living in oppression in the hot desert sun, building somebody else's empire. It's the prayers of the oppressed and the hurting that God is hearing. See, God gives a favorable ear to the suffering. That's a theme that we see here, and it gets, and we see it in the rest of the Bible. From this point, God's presence and power is partial to the poor, to the oppressed, to the marginalized, and to the suffering. And of course it is. He's a father, right? And every loving parent gives priority to their child in crisis. If you've got one child who is at home safely and the other who struggles with addiction and you don't know where they are, you're not just going to stay at home clinging to the one saying, I've, at least I've got the one. You're going to go out and find the other one and you're going to bring them home. We're seeing this literally in real time with our pastors who are at the hospital every day when they could be home with their, their other kids. But they know that they're good and they've, they've got their grandparents and thank God that God gives community. But, but our pastors are showing that. We're seeing that. They're, they're with the one who needs them right now saying, we've got you. We've got you. And God says that to you. I've got you. And he's got you. While you guys are there, God got you. He's saying it to you as you're saying it to your child. We're seeing it in real time. As the story continues from there, Israel gets freed from Egypt, but eventually find themselves in captivity again. In this time, God didn't raise up a deliverer like Moses to set them free, but instead he gives them a prophet named Isaiah to live among them. So this time, God doesn't send someone from the outside to rescue them, but he raises up a messenger from within to suffer with them. So in Exodus, we meet God as deliverer, but here we are introduced to God as co-sufferer. Isaiah 53, verse 5 through 6 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's telling us there's a deliverer coming. An even better deliverer than Moses, but this deliverer isn't coming with plagues and parting seas. He's coming to suffer. And by his suffering, we'll be freed once and for all. And that deliverer we find in scene four, simply titled Jesus. God brings an end to our suffering by suffering with us. See, he could have intervened into his own story at any point in history, but he willingly chose to be born in the middle of an infant genocide to an oppressed minority and from peasant parents. It meant that Jesus chose to spend his childhood as a refugee, bullied by political dictators and unjust systems that ruled over him, that he grew up in a shamed in a religious culture to a scandalous pregnancy, and that as a young adult, he was a blue-collar worker, barely making ends meet in a rural village. See, God did not sit at a distance and just write a happy ending to a story that was filled with pain and suffering. He entered into his own cursed creation, became a part of his own story, and redeemed the conflict through grief, pain, 
and suffering. When it was time for Jesus to begin his ministry, he did not start with teaching or miracles, but instead with 40 days of fasting alone in the wilderness. It was there that Jesus squared off against the very tempter that deceived Adam and Eve on page one of our Bible. But we see Jesus is able to resist where people gave in. In this, we see Satan tempt Jesus first with bread. I mean, after 40 days of not eating, I, I'd give in. <laughs> I'd be like, give me all the bread. Next, he tempted him with instant popularity and power by commanding the angels to earth. And lastly, to get creation back without having to suffer. To become a king without ever being a servant. To wear a crown but never carry a cross. To redeem the world but to do it without suffering. All shortcuts and Jesus resists every single one. The most scandalous part of Jesus to the modern person is his claim to be Lord. But the most scandalous part of Jesus to the ancient culture was that he, the Lord, would willingly suffer. A God who bleeds, a God who weeps, a God who grieves, a God who dies, impossible. God on a throne, sure, but God on a cross, never. And I get why it's such a shock that God would suffer, but I also believe that a God who doesn't suffer probably isn't a God worth following. Without the courage to take his own medicine and experience the exact same darkness and helplessness that we feel, how could that God be trusted? How could that God be relatable? Without suffering himself, how could God help us get through suffering? See, Jesus and only Jesus makes suffering endurable because he dealt with suffering by suffering himself. He made a way through suffering by suffering. And because he brings an end to suffering by suffering, Jesus bears the cost of the curse by enduring the real life consequences of choices that he never made on our behalf by suffering. Jesus was crucified outside of the city gate. This was a completely unpoliced area that was just outside of every ancient Near Eastern city. It's where the criminals or the sick or the weak were cast off just to fend for themselves out in the wilderness. Cast off as something less than human and treated like stray animals just to be forced to live outside and away from everyone else. And then Jesus carried his cross beyond that gate. Executed as a common criminal among common criminals. And he did that to redeem every wrong. The cross is the means by which Jesus forgave us our sins and the means by which he dealt with our suffering. Jesus himself in resurrected form went on to claim that his suffering was not just an unfortunate embarrassment that he had to endure in order to cover for you and for me, but his suffering was actually the ultimate revelation of his glory. Jesus suffered so that you and I might be healed. That is his glory. A broken body that pours out healing on every square inch of his cursed creation. You see, a God who suffers makes our suffering more endurable. 
because he repurposes it. He makes our suffering more than just meaningless pain, but repurposes our suffering into healing ointment that is poured out onto creation itself. Our suffering is not the road to destruction. It is the pathway to glory because of the cross. It was the way that he died, not the way that he lived, that ultimately makes us whole. When Jesus carried a heavy cross on his back beyond the city gate, he wasn't just carrying a cross. He was carrying the weight of the entire world suffering. It was there beyond that gate that Jesus was crucified and our sin and our suffering was put in the tomb, never to rise again. In love, Jesus identified with the harshest form of suffering. He bore our sins and our suffering in which he played no hand in and he took them to the grave to rise again three days later, defeating it once and for all. Victory not by strength, but by his weakness. Not by killing, but by being killed. Not by fighting, but by suffering. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus created this new kind of community. A community who didn't fit into this world because it did not belong to this world. A community that was now invading the world for good. People whose lives have become unrecognizable to human nature from that point. This is the start of the church as we know it, scene five, the early church. I want to drop us in the book of Acts, but first some context. At this point, the church has come alive by the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they've caused enough of an uproar that the priests who used to oppose Jesus have now started opposing those who claimed Jesus' name. So they've called Peter and John, the two most visible leaders in the church at the time, into the courts to to deliver a warning to them. Acts 5, verse 40 through 45 says, And when they called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, can you imagine the reaction of the priest that had just, like, beaten them? Like, he was just, like, they were just beat, and now they're rejoicing like it was an honor to get beat. Can you see that Peter and John's perspective is so captive to a different story? Their viewpoint is so completely given over to Jesus that their way of being in the world now makes no sense to this world because it doesn't belong to this world. You see, the way that suffering looks and played out in the early church is the same way that a rock functions in a rushing river. Rocks create rapids, right? Rocks don't stop a river's flow. They just expose the actual power of the flow that is invisible most of the time. So we see these rapids coming in moments of suffering into the story of the early church, but they're creating rapids just to show how strong the flow really is what if the suffering that unjustly and painfully intrudes in my life and your life did not stop or slow the current of the story that you're living in what if it actually exposed how strong that story really is let's listen to what the apostle paul has to say about this romans 5 1 through 5 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is making the claim that just as for Jesus, suffering was the pathway to glory, so for us, suffering is the pathway to glory. Our suffering is just another step along the path of the glory that awaits us. Depending on your own personal suffering, that phrase sounds somewhat insensitive, right? Romans 8.17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. First, you need to hear me say that there's nothing inherently noble about suffering. Sometimes pain just hurts. And suffering is just sad, and grief just has to be gotten through. Idealizing the bad in our lives does not make the good bad. It's still bad, plain and simple. But there is a way that we can endure the tragic consequences of a fallen world in a way that allows God to transform something as dark as suffering into something like redemption. And Jesus came to give us that redemption. Jesus walked this earth and came and died on our behalf so that we can be redeemed through our suffering. So our suffering can match with his suffering and glory is created. See, the suffering for those who accept the free gift of God's grace does not win. It does not have the final say. The curse that infected creation on the first page of the Bible is finally forever eradicated on the last. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud noise from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. God's method, method of recreation is not protection, it is redemption. God does not promise to protect us from pain. In fact, in fact, he tells us that we will feel it in this world. But he also promises to redeem every moment of pain, to redeem every grief and suffering and everything in between, and to redeem the life both inwardly and outwardly. We do not belong to this world, but to a world that is coming, a world where suffering does not happen, where pain is not felt, felt, where death does not exist. This is the good news, and that is the end of the story. That is the full realization of Jesus' victory. It is a promise that though we may face trials, Jesus has the final say, a promise that we can trust and build our lives on. So where can we find hope in the face of suffering? In the suffering of Jesus, who bore our sin and our suffering. His death sealed our redemption and the promise that in the end, suffering will not win. That every bit of pain that you endure in this life will be woven by the great storyteller into the tapestry of redemption. 
that every tear that you shed, every pain that you feel, every heartbreak that you experience, every loneliness, every abandonment, every trial, every tragedy will be redeemed and made into a piece of this coming promise. Whatever you're facing today, you're not facing it alone. Jesus aches with you. He weeps with you. He cries with you. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A God who bleeds. A God who weeps. A God who grieves. A God who dies. Where is God? This is where. Hanging here from these gallows. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you willingly bore our pain, our sin, and our suffering, and you took it to the cross, and you died, and you defeated it once and for all. We thank you that your suffering creates redemption within us, that though we may face trials in this world, they will not win because your death had the final say. And so we give you honor and praise today, Jesus. Help us to be reminded by this each and every day, no matter what we're going through, that you are with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We praise you, we love you, in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Cross and Anchor podcast from Detroit, Michigan. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from and share this with others. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. And let's live our lives on purpose.